The Terror of the Same The time in which there was such a thing as the other is over. The other as a secret, the other as a temptation, the other as eros, the other as desire, the other as hell, and the other as pain disappear. The negativity of the other now gives way to the positivity of the same. The proliferation of the same constitutes the pathological changes that afflict the social body. It is made sick not by denial and prohibition, but by overcommunication and overconsumption. Not by suppression and negation, but by permissiveness and affirmation. The pathological sign of our times is not repression, but depression. Destructive pressure comes not from the other, but from within. Depression as internal pressure develops autoaggressive traits. The depressive performance subject is, as it were, beaten down or suffocated by the self. Not only the violence of the other is destructive, the expulsion of the other sets in motion an entirely different process of destruction namely that of self-destruction. In general, the dialectic of violence applies. A system that rejects the negativity of the other develops self-destructive traits. The violence of the same is invisible because of its positivity. The proliferation of the same presents itself as growth. At a certain point, however, production is no longer productive but destructive. Information is no longer informative, but deformative. And communication is no longer communicative, but merely cumulative. Today, perception itself takes the form of binge-watching. This refers to the consumption of videos and films without any temporal restrictions. The consumers are continuously offered those films and series that match their taste and therefore please them. Like consumer livestock, they are fattened with ever new sameness. Binge watching can be generalized as the contemporary mode of perception. The proliferation of the same resembles not a carcinoma but a coma and does not meet with any immunological defenses. One goggles oneself into unconsciousness. The cause of an infection is the negativity of the other, who infiltrates the same and leads to the formation of antibodies. The infarction, on the other hand, comes from an excess of the same, of the obesity of the system. It is not infectious, but adipose. Fat creates no antibodies. No immunological defense can prevent the proliferation of the same. The negativity of the other provides form and measure for the self-same. Without it, the same proliferates. The self-same is not identical to the same. It always appears in tandem with the other. The same, by contrast, lacks a dialectical counterpart that can limit and form it, and thus proliferates into a formless mass. 
The self-same has a form, an inner collectedness, an inwardness that is due to its difference from the other. The same, however, is formless. As it lacks dialectical tension, it leads to an indifferent collection, a sprawling mass of indistinguishability. We can only say the self-same if we think difference. It is in the carrying out and settling of differences that the gathering nature of the self-same comes to light. The self-same banishes all zeal always to level what is different into the same. The self-same gathers what is distinct into an original being at one. The same, on the contrary, disperses them into the dull unity of mere uniformity. The terror of the same affects all areas of life today. One travels everywhere, yet does not experience anything. One catches sight of everything, yet reaches no insight. One accumulates information and data, yet does not attain knowledge. One lusts after adventures and stimulation, but always remains the same. One accumulates online friends and followers, yet never encounters another person. Social media constitutes an absolute zero grade of the social. Total interconnection and total communication by digital means does not facilitate encounters with others. Rather, it serves to pass over those who are unfamiliar and other, and instead find those who are the same or like-minded, ensuring that our horizon of experience becomes ever narrower. It draws us into an endless ego loop, ultimately leading to an auto-propaganda, indoctrinating us with our own ideas. The negativity of the other and of transformation is what constitutes experience in an emphatic sense. To have an experience of something means that this is something that befalls us, strikes us, comes over us, overwhelms and transforms us. Its essence is pain. The same, however, is not painful. Today, pain gives way to an online like, which constitutes the same. Information is simply available. Knowledge, in an emphatic sense, however, is a long and slow process. It displays an entirely different temporality. It matures. Maturation is a temporality that we are increasingly losing today. It is not compatible with today's politics of time, which fragments time and eliminates temporarily stable structures in order to increase efficiency and productivity. Even the largest accumulation of information, big data, possesses very little knowledge. Big data is used to find correlations. A correlation states, when A occurs, B often also occurs. It is not known, however, why this is so. Correlation is the most primitive form of knowledge, 
being not even capable of ascertaining the relationship between cause and effect. It is so. The question of why becomes irrelevant, and thus nothing is understood. But knowledge is understanding, hence big data renders thought superfluous. We surrender ourselves without concern to the it is so. Thought has access to the entirely other. It can interrupt the same. Therein lies its event character. Calculation, on the other hand, is an endless repetition of the same. In contrast to thought, it cannot produce any new state. It is blind to the event. True thought, however, is eventful. The French word for digital is numérique. The numerical makes everything countable and comparable. Thus, it perpetuates the same. Insight, in an emphatic sense, is also transformative. It produces a new state of consciousness. Its structure resembles that of a redemption, providing more than the solution to a problem. It puts those in need of redemption in an entirely different state of being. In his text, Love and Knowledge, Max Scheller points out that Augustine ascribes to plants, in mysterious ways, a longing to be looked at by humans. As though what happens to plants through love-derived insight is a kind of analog of redemption. If a flower had a fullness of being within itself, it would not feel a need to be looked at. Hence, it has a lack, a lack of being. The loving gaze, a love-derived insight, redeems it from the state of lack. It is thus an analog of redemption. Insight is redemption. It has a loving relation to its object as something other. This is where it differs from mere cognizance or information, which entirely lacks the dimension of the other. Negativity inheres in the event, for it brings with it a new relationship with reality a new world, a new understanding of what is. It suddenly places everything in an entirely different light. Heidegger's forgetfulness of being means nothing other than this event blindness. Heidegger would say that today's communication noise, the digital flurry of data and information, deafens us to the noiseless roar of the truth to its silent violence. A roar, it is truth itself, stepped among mankind, right into the metaphor flurry. The beginnings of the digital revolution were dominated above all by utopian projects. Flusser, for example, elevated digital interconnection to the technology of altruism. Being human, then, means being connected to others. Digital interconnection supposedly enables a special experience of resonance. Everything resonates sympathetically.
The nut vibrates. It is a pathos. It is a resonance. That is the foundation of telematics, this sympathy and antipathy of proximity. I believe that telematics is a technology of altruism, a technology for the implementation of Judeo-Christianity. The basis of telematics is empathy. It eliminates humanism in favor of altruism. The mere fact that this is possible is already quite colossal. Today, the net changes into a special resonant place, an echo chamber purged of all otherness, all foreignness. True resonance presupposes the proximity of the other. Today, the proximity of the other gives way to the gaplessness of the same. Global communication only permits equal others or other equals. Distance is inscribed in closeness as its dialectical counterpart. The abolition of distance does not create more closeness, but rather destroys it. Instead of closeness, a complete gaplessness ensues. Closeness and distance are interwoven, kept together by a dialectical tension. This tension consists in the fact that things are given life precisely by their opposite, by that which is other than themselves. A mere positivity like gaplessness lacks this animating force. Closeness and distance dialectically mediate each other like the self-same and the other. Thus, neither gaplessness nor the same are alive. Digital gaplessness removes all varieties of proximity and distance. Everything is equally near and equally far. Trace and aura. The trace is appearance of a nearness, however far removed the thing that left it may be. The aura is appearance of a distance, however close the thing that calls it forth. The negativity of the other the foreign, the enigma, inheres in the aura. The digital society of transparency de-auratizes and demystifies the world. Overclosseness and overexposure, as the general pictorial effect of porn, destroy any erotic distance, which also characterizes the erotic. In porn, all bodies are alike. They also consist of equal body parts. Robbed of all language, the body is reduced to the sexual, which knows no difference apart from gender. The pornographic body is no longer a sight, a sumptuous theater, the fabulous surface of the inscription of dreams and divinities. It relates nothing. It does not seduce. Pornography carries out a complete denarrativization and delingualization, not only of the body, but of communication as such. Therein lies its obscenity. It is impossible to play with the naked flesh. Play requires 
an illusion, an untruth. Naked pornographic truth permits no play, no seduction. Sexuality as functional performance, likewise, drives out all forms of play. It becomes entirely mechanical. The neoliberal imperative of performance, sexiness, and fitness ultimately reduces the body to a functional object that is to be optimized. The proliferation of the same is the full through which only the empty appears. The expulsion of the other produces an adipose emptiness of fullness. What is obscene is the hypervisibility, hypercommunication, hyperproduction, and hyperconsumption that lead to a rushing standstill of the same. What is obscene is the perpetual engendering of the same by the same. Seduction, by contrast, is the power to tear the same away from the same, to make it deviate from itself. The subject of seduction is the other. Its mode is play as the counter mode to performance and production. Today, even play is transformed into a form of production. Work is gamified. Charlie Kaufman's stop-motion film Anomalisa mercilessly depicts today's hell of sameness. It could equally have been called longing for the other or in praise of love. In the hell of sameness, no desire for the other is possible. The protagonist, Michael Stone, is a successful motivation trainer and author. His best-selling volume is entitled How Can I Help You Help Them? A typical self-help guide for the neoliberal world. The book is universally acclaimed because it considerably increases productivity. Despite his success, he finds himself in a major existential crisis. He seems lonely, lost, bored, disillusioned, and disoriented in a meaningless, monotonous, polished society of consumerism and performance. Its denizens all have the same face and speak in the same voice. The voice of the taxi driver, the waitress, or the hotel manager is identical to that of his wife or his ex-girlfriend. The face of a child is no different from that of an adult. The world is peopled by clones, yet each paradoxically wants to be different from the others. Michael goes to Cincinnati to give a lecture. At the hotel, he hears a woman's voice that sounds entirely different. He knocks at the door of what he assumes to be her room. He finds her. To his surprise, she recognizes him. She has come to Cincinnati to hear his lecture. She has not only a different voice, but also a different face, yet she finds herself ugly as her face deviates from the optimized standard one. She is also chubby and has a facial scar that she tries to hide behind her hair. But Michael falls in love with her, with her different voice, with her otherness, 
with her anomaly. Intoxicated with love, he calls her Anomalisa. They spend the night together. In a nightmare, Michael is pursued by completely identical hotel staff who want to have sex with him. He wanders through a hell of sameness. At breakfast, he is alarmed to find that Lisa's voice is becoming increasingly like the standard voice. He returns home. The desert of sameness is everywhere. His family and friends welcome him, but he cannot tell them apart. They are all the same. Totally confused, he finds himself looking at an old Japanese sex doll that he bought for his son at a sex shop. His mouth is her mouth is wide open, ready to fellate. In the final scene, Lisa affirms her love for Michael as if from another world. Seemingly liberated from the spell of sameness, in which everyone is given back their own voice and their own face. Lisa tells him in passing that Anomalisa means sky goddess in Japanese. Anomalisa is the epitome of the other who saves us from the hell of sameness. She is the other as Eros. In that hell of sameness, humans are nothing but remote-controlled puppets. It therefore makes sense that the film was indeed made with puppets, not real actors. The treacherous cracks in Michael's face makes him sense that he is now only a puppet. In one scene, part of his face falls off. He holds the piece of his mouth, which automatically babbles something. He is shocked by the fact that he is a puppet. Buchner's statement that we are puppets drawn with wire by unknown forces, nothing, nothing is ourselves, could probably have served as the film's tagline. The Violence of the Global and Terrorism Globalization has an inherent violence that makes everything interchangeable, comparable, and thus the same. Ultimately, this total equalization leads to a negation of meaning. Meaning is something incomparable. Yet money creates neither meaning nor identity. The violence of the global as the violence of the same destroys the negativity of the other, of the singular, of the incomparable, which impairs the circulation of information, communication, and capital. It is precisely where the same encounters the same that this circulation reaches its highest velocity. The violence of the global, which levels out everything into the same and establishes a hell of sameness, produces a destructive counterforce. Jean Baudrillard has all already pointed out that the madness of globalization creates terrorists as madmen. This would mean that the prison camp at Guantanamo Bay corresponds to the asylums and prisons of that repressive disciplinary society which itself produces delinquents and psychopaths. With terrorism, something has happened that points beyond the immediate intention of its actors to systemic fractures. 
It is not the religious itself that drives people to terrorism. Rather, it is the resistance of the singular to the violence of the global. A defense against terror that is directed at particular regions and groups of people is therefore a helpless substitute act. Invoking the enemy likewise conceals the truer problem, which has a systemic cause. It is the terror of the global itself that produces terrorism. The violence of the global sweeps away all singularities that do not submit to universal exchange. Terrorism is the terror of the singular against the terror of the global. Death, which eludes all exchange, is the epitome of the singular. In the shape of terrorism, it bursts brutally into the system where life is totalized as production and performance. Death is the end of production. The glorification of death by the terrorists and today's health hysteria, which attempts to prolong life as mere life at all costs, are mutually dependent. Al-Qaeda's motto draws attention to the system, systemic connection. You love life, we love death. Jean Baudrillard refers to the architectural particularity of the Twin Towers, which had already been the target of an Islamic terrorist attack in 1993. Whereas the high-rise buildings of the Rockefeller Center reflect the city and have sky in their glass and steel fronts, the Twin Towers have no connection to the outside, no connection to the other. The two twin buildings which resemble each other and reflect each other form a closed system. Thus the same established itself in a total exclusion of the other. The terrorist attack puts cracks in this global system of sameness. Today's reawakening nationalism, the new right or the identitarian movement, are likewise reflex reactions to the dominance of the global. It is no coincidence, therefore, that the followers of the new right are not only xenophobic, but also critical of capitalism. Both the national romantic praise of borders and Islamic terrorism follow the same reactive schema in the face of the global. Neoliberalism produces massive injustice at the global level. Exploitation and exclusion are constitutive of it. It sets up a panopticon that identifies those who are hostile or unsuited to the system as undesirable and excludes them. The panopticon serves to discipline, while the panopticon provides security. Neoliberalism even exacerbates social injustice within the zone of Western affluence. Ultimately, it abolishes the social market economy. The originator of the term neoliberalism, Alexander Rustal, had already noted that a society governed entirely by the laws of the neoliberal market would become inhumane and create social fractures. Accordingly, he points out that neoliberalism 
must be augmented by a politics of vitality, vital politic, that brings about solidarity and community spirit. Without this politics of life as a corrective, neoliberalism results in insecure, fear-driven masses that can easily be co-opted by ethno-nationalistic forces. Here, the fear of one's own future turns into xenophobia. Fear for oneself is manifested not only as hatred of strangers, but also as self-hatred. The society of fear and the society of hatred are mutually dependent. Social insecurities, coupled with a lack of hope or perspectives, also provide fertile soil for terrorist forces. The neoliberal system virtually breeds these only seemingly opposed destructive elements. In reality, the Islamic terrorist and the ethno-nationalists are not enemies but siblings, for they, they share the same genealogy. Money is a poor bestower of identity. It can replace identity, however, for money gives its owner at least a feeling of security and calm. Someone who does not even have money, however, has nothing, neither identity nor security. Thus, they are forced into the imaginary, for example, the ethnic perspective, which quickly provides an identity. In doing so, they invent an enemy for themselves, such as Islam. Hence, one builds up immunities via imaginary channels in order to arrive at a meaningful identity. Fear for oneself unconsciously fosters a longing for the enemy. The enemy, even in imaginary form, is a fast supplier of identity. The enemy is our own question as gestalt. For this reason, I must confront him in battle in order to arrive at my own standard, my own bounds, my own gestalt. The imaginary compensates for what is lacking in reality. Terrorists likewise inhabit the imaginary. The global creates imaginary spaces that provoke actual violence. The violence of the global simultaneously weakens the immune defense, which hinders the accelerated global circulation of information and capital. It is precisely in those places where the immune thresholds are very low that capital flows very quickly. Within the currently predominant order of the global, which totalizes the same, there are only really equal others or other equals. Fantasies for others do not awaken at the newly erected border fences. They are speechless. In reality, immigrants and refugees are not others either, not strangers that create the feeling of an actual threat, of real fear. That threat exists only in the imaginary realm. Immigrants and refugees are seen more as a burden. As possible neighbors, they are objects of resentment and envy, which, in contrast to dread, fear, and disgust, are not genuine immunological reactions. 
Xenophobic masses may be against North Africans, but they go to their countries for package tours. For Baudrillard, the violence of the global is carcinomatous. It spreads like cancerous cells through endless proliferation, excrescence, and metastasis. He uses an immunological model to explain the global. All the talk of immunity, antibodies, grafting, and rejection should not surprise anyone. The violence of the global is a viral violence out of networks and the virtual. Virtuality is viral. What is problematic is this immunological description of interconnection. Immunities restrict the circulation of information and communication. A Facebook like is not an immunological reaction. The violence of the global as the violence of positivity is post-immunological. Baudrillard overlooks this paradigm shift, which is constitutive of the digital neoliberal order. Immunities are part of the earthly order. Jenny Holzer's injunction, protect me from what I want, precisely demonstrates the post-immunological quality of the violence of positivity. Infection, grafting, rejection, and antibodies do not explain today's excess of overcommunication and overinformation. The excess of the same can lead to vomiting, but this is different from a disgust toward the other, the unfamiliar. Disgust is a state of alarm and emergency, an acute crisis of self-assertion in the face of an unassimilable otherness. It is precisely the missing negativity of the other that provokes such symptoms as bulimia, binge-watching, or binge-eating. They are not viral, rather they stem from the violence of positivity, which eludes any immune defense. Neoliberalism is anything but the endpoint of the Enlightenment. It is not guided by reason. It is precisely its lunacy that produces destructive tensions which erupt in the form of terrorism and nationalism. The freedom which neoliberalism purports to be is an advertisement. Today, the global even appropriates universal values, thus freedom itself is exploited. People willingly exploit themselves under the illusion of realizing themselves. It is not the suppression of freedom, but rather its exploitation that maximizes productivity and efficiency. This is the perfidious logic that underlies neoliberalism. In the face of the violence of the global, the concern must be to protect the universal from co-option by the global. It is therefore necessary to invent a universal order that also opens up to the singular. That singular, which erupts violently into the system of the global, is not the other who would permit a dialogue. 
The diabolical nature of terrorism lies in the impossibility of dialogue that characterizes it. The singular would only give up its diabolical nature in a reconciled state in which it remained the distant, different element in the midst of the closeness provided. Kant's perpetual peace is nothing other than the state of reconciliation. It rests on universal values that reason provides for itself. According to Kant, peace is also forced by the spirit of trade, which cannot coexist with war, and which will sooner or later take hold of every people. But it is temporary, not perpetual. It is only the power of money that forces peace for its own purposes. Global trade is a war by other means, however, as Goethe's Faust has already conveyed. What seaman does not take for granted the undivided trinity of war and trade and piracy? The violence of the global produces deaths and refugees in the same way as a true world war. The peace forced by the spirit of trade is not only temporary, but also geographically restricted. The zone of affluence, or in fact, the island of affluence as a binopticon, is surrounded by border fences, refugee camps, and theaters of war. Kant presumably failed to recognize the diabolical, indeed reasonless, nature of the spirit of trade. His judgment was lenient. He assumed it would bring about a long peace. But this peace is mere illusion. The spirit of trade's only remaining talent is calculation. It lacks all reason. Hence, a system governed purely by the spirit of trade, the power of money, is itself reasonless. Today's refugee crisis makes it especially clear that the EU is no more than an economic trading union guided by self-interest. The EU, as a European free trade zone, a treaty community comprising governments and their nation-state interests, is not what Kant would consider a product of reason, a reason-based League of Nations. Only a constitutional community committed to universal values, such as human dignity, would be considered reason-based. Kant's idea of perpetual peace brought about by reason reaches its climax in his call for unconditional hospitality, which would give every person the right to reside in a foreign country. The stranger could stay there without facing any hostility, as long as the stranger behaves peacefully where he happens to be. No one, Kant argues, has more of a right to be at a given place on earth than anyone else. Hospitality is not a utopian notion, but rather a mandatory idea of reason. As in the previous articles, we are concerned here with right, not with philanthropy. And in this context, hospitality, a host's conduct to his guest, means the right of a stranger not to be treated in a hostile manner by another upon his arrival on the other's territory. Hospitality is no fantastic or exaggerated conception of right. 
Rather, it is a necessary supplement to the unwritten code of constitutional and international right. For public human right in general, and hence for perpetual peace. Only under this condition can one flatter oneself to be continually progressing toward perpetual peace. Hospitality is the highest expression of a universal reason that has come into its own. Reason does not exercise any homogenizing power. Its friendliness enables it to acknowledge the other in their otherness and welcome them. Friendliness means freedom. In addition to reason, the idea of hospitality also displays something universal. For Nietzsche, it is an expression of the overabundant soul. It is capable of harboring all singularities within itself. And let all that is becoming, roaming, searching, fleeing, be welcome here. Henceforth, the friendship of hospitality will be my only friendship. Hospitality promises reconciliation. Its aesthetic manifestation is beauty. We are always rewarded in the end for our goodwill, our patience, our fair-mindedness, and gentleness with what is strange, as it gradually casts off its veil and presents itself as a new and indescribable beauty. That is, its thanks for our hospitality. The politics of beauty is the politics of hospitality. Xenophobia is hatred and ugly. It is an expression of a lack of universal reason, a sign that society is still in an unreconciled state. How civilized a society is can be judged by its hospitality in particular, indeed its friendliness. Reconciliation means friendliness. The Terror of Authenticity There is much talk of authenticity today. Like all of neoliberalism's advertisements, it appears in an emancipatory guise. To be authentic means to be free of preformed expressive and behavioral patterns dictated from the outside. It prescribes that one must equal only oneself and define oneself only through oneself. Indeed, that one must be the author and creator of oneself. The imperative of authenticity develops a self-directed compulsion, a compulsion to constantly question oneself, eavesdrop on oneself, stalk and besiege oneself. It thus intensifies narcissistic self-reference. The compulsion to authenticity forces the I to produce itself. Authenticity is ultimately the self's neoliberal form of production. It makes every person the producer of themselves. The I, as its own entrepreneur, produces itself, performs itself, and offers itself as a commodity. Authenticity is a selling point. The striving for authenticity, the striving to equal only oneself, leads to a constant comparison with others. The logic of comparison transforms otherness into sameness, and thus the authenticity of otherness consolidates social conformity. 
It only permits system-compatible differences, namely diversity. Diversity, as a neoliberal term, is a resource that can be exploited. Hence, it contrasts with alterity, which eludes any economic utilization. Today, everyone wants to be different from others. However, this will to be different enables a continuation of the same. We are now dealing with a higher order conformity. Sameness asserts itself by going through otherness. The authenticity of otherness even perpetuates conformity more efficiently than repressive equalization, which is far more fragile. Socrates, as a beloved person, is called Atopos by his students. The other whom I desire is placeless. They elude all comparisons. In a lover's discourse, fragments, Roland Barth writes the following about the atopia of the other. Being atopic, the other makes language indecisive. One cannot speak of the other about the other. Every attribute is false, painful, erroneous, awkward. Socrates, as an object of desire, is incomparable and singular. Singularity is something entirely different from authenticity. Authenticity presupposes comparability. Someone who is authentic is different from others. But Socrates is atopos, incomparable. He differs not only from other people, but also from everything else that is different from other people. The culture of constant comparison does not allow the negativity of the atopos. It makes everything comparable, that is, the same. Thus, it renders the experience of the atopic other impossible. Consumer society strives to eliminate atopic otherness in favor of consumable, indeed heterotopic, differences. In contrast to atopic otherness, difference is a positivity. The terror of authenticity as a neoliberal form of production and conception does away with atopic otherness. The negativity of the entirely other gives way to the positivity of the same, in fact, the same other. As a neoliberal production strategy, authenticity creates commodifiable differences. It thus increases the diversity of the commodities in which authenticity is materialized. Individuals express their authenticity primarily through consumption. The imperative of authenticity does not lead to the formation of an autonomous, self-possessed individual. Rather, it is entirely co-opted by commerce. The imperative of authenticity engenders a narcissistic compulsion. Narcissism is distinct from healthy self-love, which has nothing pathological about it. It does not rule out love for the other. The narcissist, however, is blind to the other. The other is bent into shape until the ego recognizes itself in them. The narcissistic subject perceives the world only in shadings of itself. This results in a disastrous consequence. The other disappears. 
The boundary between the self and the other becomes blurred. The self diffuses and becomes diffuse. The I drowns in the self. For a stable self only comes about in the face of the other, but excessive narcissistic self-reference creates a feeling of emptiness. Today, libidinous energies are invested primarily in the ego. The narcissistic accumulation of the ego libido causes a depletion of the object libido, that is, the libido that occupies the object. The object libido creates an object attachment that conversely stabilizes the ego. An excessive narcissistic buildup of the ego libido causes illness. It produces negative feelings such as fear, shame, guilt, and emptiness. But it is quite a different thing when a particular, very energetic process forces a withdrawal of libido from objects. Here, the libido that has become narcissistic cannot find its way back to objects, and thus interference with the libido's mobility certainly becomes pathogenic. It seems that an accumulation of narcissistic libido beyond a certain amount is not tolerated. Fear results when there is no longer any object charged with libido. The world thus becomes empty and senseless. Owing to the lack of object attachment, the ego is thrown back on itself and broken by itself. Depression is attributable to narcissistic accumulation of ego libido. Freud even applies his libido theory to biology. Cells that only behave narcissistically, that lack eros, endanger the organism's survival. The survival of the cells also requires those cells that behave altruistically or even sacrifice themselves for others. Perhaps we may also use the term narcissistic in the same sense to describe the cells of malignant neoplasms that destroy the organism. After all, pathologists are prepared to accept that the seeds of these growths are present at birth and to concede that they display features characteristic of embryos. All of this being so, it would appear that the libido of our sexual drives is one and the same thing as the eros evoked by poets and philosophers, the binding force within each and every living thing. Eros alone animates the organism. The same applies to society. Excessive narcissism destabilizes it. The lack of self-esteem that underlies self-harm, the act of cutting oneself, points to a general crisis of gratification in our society. I cannot produce self-esteem myself. I must rely on the other as a gratifying authority who loves, praises, acknowledges, and appreciates me. The narcissistic isolation of human beings, the instrumentalization of the other, and total competition destroy the climate of gratification. To have a stable self-esteem, I am dependent on the notion that I am important for other people, that I am loved by them.
It may be diffuse, but it is indispensable for the feeling of being important. It is precisely the insufficient sense of being that is responsible for self-harm. Cutting oneself is not only a ritual of self-punishment for one's own feelings of inadequacy that are typical of today's performance and optimization-oriented society, but also a cry for love. The sense of emptiness is a basic symptom of depression and borderline personality disorder. Borderliners are often unable to feel themselves. Only when they cut themselves do they feel anything. For the depressive performance subject, the self is a heavy burden. It is tired of itself. Entirely incapable of stepping outside itself, it becomes absorbed in itself, which paradoxically results in an emptying and erosion of the self. Isolated in its mental enclosure, trapped in itself, it loses any connection to the other. I touch myself, but I only feel myself through the other's touch. The other is instrumental in the formation of a stable self. The elimination of all negativity is a hallmark of contemporary society. Everything is smoothed out. Communication, too, is smoothed out into an exchange of pleasantries. <clears throat> Negative feelings, such as sorrow, are denied any language, any expression. Every form of injury by others is avoided, yet it rises again as self-harm. Here, too, we find a confirmation of the general logic that the expulsion of the other results in a process of self-destruction. According to Alain Ehrenberg, the success of depression is based on a lost connection to conflict. Today's culture of performance and optimization does not allow us to work through conflicts, which is time-consuming. Today's performance subject only knows two states, functioning or failing. In this, there is a resemblance to the condition of machines. Machines also know no conflict. They either function correctly or are broken. Conflicts are not destructive. They have a constructive side. It is only from conflicts that stable relationships and identities ensue. A person grows and matures by working through conflict. The seductive aspect of cutting oneself is that it quickly releases accumulated destructive tension without the time-consuming act of working through conflict. The fast relief of tension is handed over to chemical processes. Endogenous drugs are released. It works in a comparable manner to antidepressants. These two suppress states of conflict and quickly restore the depressive performance subject to a functioning state. The addiction to selfies also has little to do with self-love. It is nothing other than the idle motion of the lonely subject. Faced with one's inner emptiness, one vainly attempts to produce oneself. The emptiness merely reproduces itself. 
Selfies are the self in empty forms. Selfie addiction heightens the feeling of emptiness. It results not from self-love, but from narcissistic self-reference. Selfies are pretty, smooth surfaces of an empty, insecure self. To escape this torturous emptiness today, one reaches either for the razor blade or the smartphone. Selfies are smooth surfaces that hide the empty self for a short while. But if one turns them over, one discovers their other side, covered in wounds and bleeding. Wounds are the flip flip sides of selfies. Could suicide attacks be perverse attempts to feel oneself, to restore a destroyed self-esteem, to bomb or shoot away the burden of emptiness? Could one compare the psychology of terror to that of the selfie and self-harm, which also act against the empty ego? Might terrorists have the same psychological profile as the adolescents who harm themselves, who turn their aggression toward themselves? Unlike girls, boys are known to direct their aggression outwards, against others. The suicide attack would then be a paradoxical act in which autoaggression and aggression towards others, self-production and self-destruction become one. A higher-order aggression that is simultaneously imagined as the ultimate selfie. The push of the button that sets off the bomb is like the push of the camera button. Terrorists inhabit the imaginary because reality, which consists of discrimination and hopelessness, is no longer worth living. Reality denies them any gratification. Thus, they invoke God as an imaginary gratifying authority, and can also be sure that their photograph will be all over the media, like a form of selfie directly after the deed. The terrorist is a narcissist with an explosive belt that makes those who wear it especially authentic. Karl Heinz Bauer is not wrong when he notes in his essay Authenticity and Terror that terrorism is the final act of authenticity.